And the second reading is from Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he was put to death, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. We are going to be uh, starting a new series this week, Gospel Identities. Um, we're going to be largely in the book of Ephesians. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, we'd like to be following along. There's a bunch um, of black ones at the back. Please feel free to grab one or get out your phones or your own copies, of course. Uh, let's pray before we jump in. Gracious God, uh, we thank you so much uh, that you revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ as one who loves us and cares for us and calls us according to your purposes. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you uh, change us and work an, a great action of transformation in our hearts uh, when we become Christians, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, given new identity, new purpose, and new meaning. Uh, Father, I pray that you help us in this series to help us know what those identities are, at least some of them, and how we are to called to live them out in the everyday stuff of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you, has anyone seen the, the uh, SBS show, Who Do You Think You Are? No one talking about. Uh, it's a really popular show. Um, and in the series, uh, various uh, celebrities, well-known people, uh, research their family trees. Uh, you would think it would be the most boring show ever in the world. Uh, but it's not. It's actually really interesting. Um, often because, you know, it's a little bit sensationalized. As they go through their tree, there's always the hidden secret. You know, it looks amazing on the ad and then it's kind of a bit of a letdown in the actual show. Uh, you know, oftentimes there's a, a link to royalty or to wealthy, influential people somewhere down the line. Um, or more often than not, uh, skeletons are uncovered. 
in the closet. <laughs> um, what is it, do you think, it's not just celebrities on this show, but lots of people are really interested in their family history. Um, why do you think that is? What, what would it be that drives someone to, to kind of go back and understand their origins? Well, I think it's got to do with this attempt to understand a very difficult question. And that is, who am I? Who am I? Who are you? Or, to put it another way, what is my identity? What is it that makes me, me? It's perhaps the most important question anyone can ask. Um, and so we should ask ourselves, I guess, what, what is identity? What, what does that e word even mean for us as humans? Uh, well, one trio of uh, researchers put it this way. Identity is an individual's sense of placement within the world the meaning one attaches to oneself as reflected in the answers one provides to the questions, who am I and who am I to be? Now, that, that's quite a strict kind of almost academic definition. Um, I might try and put it a bit simpler, that a person's identity comes from how you answer two key questions, where do I belong and why am I valuable? Where do I belong and why am I valuable? When you are really young, like a, a toddler, uh, the answer to those questions is really simple. Where do I belong? I belong with my parents. Why am I valuable? Well, because my parents love me. It's simple. It's, it's, it's not too complicated when you're young. But as you grow up, as you get older, the answers become much more complex. Uh, things like education, body image, family dynamics, peer groups, career choice, uh, even the culture of the city or country you choose to live in, all these things will start to vie for a place in how you formulate your identity. They want to be part of the answer to who you are. Uh, this series was going to explore the concept of Christian identity. How does being a Christian change who you think you are? It's really common conception uh, for most of the world, I think, that becoming a Christian simply means to adopt a set of moral behaviors. You, you become a good person. You start doing good things. But actually, the Bible says that becoming a Christian is to be born again. It means to be a new creation. So actually, becoming a Christian is about deep spiritual transformation from the deepest core of you to the outside. Of course, this will change how you live because your identity always tells you how you will live your life, but it doesn't start with a behavior, it starts with the heart. So we're going to, over the next three weeks, explore three core identities that come with being a Christian. Now, I should say these are not the only identities um, for being a Christian. There's, there's, there's other ones, like we are, we're called to be a holy people, we're called to be a royal priesthood, uh, ambassadors for Christ. There's, there's actually quite a number, but we're going to explore three that I think are, one, some, three are probably the most common um, in the Bible. And that is that, one, we are family who love each other. We are servants who serve the least among us. And we are missionaries who proclaim Jesus. Okay, We are family, we are servants, we are missionaries. So today, family. Uh, as we explore this one, we're going to go through uh, three 
basic ideas. I'm going to talk about the formation of the family, the flourishing of the family, and the foundation of the family. And yes, there were tears in my eyes when I realized that they could all start with F. <laughs> Not just the first words either. It's like, it's pro when you go to the second words too. <laughs> uh, so, the, the first F, uh, the formation of the family. Uh, the idea that, that God's people should be understood as family actually goes way back further than just the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Uh, God kickstarts his plan to, to save the world from the ravages of sin and death by calling out of obscurity a family, a nomadic family, the family of Abraham. Uh, Abraham's family is going to be the first members of the people of God. And for generations, what would become the nation of Israel is quite literally the extended family of Abraham, but multiplied through generations to even hundreds of thousands. Uh, eventually, his family finds themselves slaves in Egypt, as we know in the book of Exodus. Uh, and to rescue them, God calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Uh, and God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn. Let my son go so he may worship me. So here we have something new in the story. We find out the true identity of Israel's father. That actually uh, it's not ultimately Abraham or, or Isaac or Jacob, but Israel's true father is God himself. God is revealed to Israel not as kind of like an impersonal or uh, kind of capricious deity, but as a personal, loving father. A divine father who will love and guide and protect. So in Exodus, God makes a covenant with Israel. Uh, God promises to be a faithful father. But in return, Israel promises to be a faithful son. Israel must honor the relationship by loving and honoring and obeying their heavenly Father. And that's how the story begins. But and it should have been a fairy tale. It should have been this wonderful story of a faithful father and a, a faithful son. But it actually turns out to be a tragedy. Because Israel could not uphold their end of the bargain. They couldn't maintain the relationship. So they forsook their father. They left him. They became estranged and ran after other gods. They worshipped other gods. No passage in the Bible describes the parental grief of God better than Hosea chapter 11. Listen to this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. This is such a rare, a rare glimpse into the 
the deeply emotional heart of God. That when his children turn from him, he feels the hurt as any parent would, and yet on a scale infinitely greater than any human parent. So the reader might be wondering, well, what's going to happen next? Will the story end here in tragedy? Well, of course not. There's a plot twist. Uh, If Hosea 11 is a song of lament over lost children, then Jeremiah 31 is a song of celebration that they're coming home. It's a party anthem. It begins with, Sing for joy, Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame. Expectant mothers and women in labor, a great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hearing the echoes of the language all the way back to Genesis, Exodus. God promises a family reunion for Israel. Those who were scattered would once again be united. And if we look closely, uh, we see that hints that in this family reunion, it would not be the same as before. It would in fact be better. The future for Israel is a glorious one. It will be better than it was before. What are the hints? Well, firstly, we see that the family is going to be extended. So far, the family of God is really only the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But now... The nations will be invited to join the family. The nations, not just Israel, but people from all other races would be invited, would be grafted into this new family. And secondly, there are hints that there will be not only new members of the family, but a new family head. Because remember that Israel is still sinful. Israel will still be unfaithful. There is still a problem that needs to be resolved. So God promises someone who would fulfill the role of the faithful son on their behalf. A Messiah would be sent who would represent Israel to God. When Jesus Christ uh, is baptized by John the Baptist. He comes out of the water and the the Holy Spirit says descends on him like a dove and the voice of the Father, God the Father, comes out of the sky and says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We can't miss the implications of that word, Son. If Jesus is God's Son, well, how can Israel also be God's Son? Both firstborn. How, How does that work? How can there be now two sons as far as what God says. Well, it can be true because Jesus comes to represent in himself Israel as it was meant to be. Jesus is the true Israelite, the true son. He is the true and better and more faithful son than Israel could ever be. And in him, he now represents the whole. He is like a captain of a football team. In, in the role is to represent the team, to, to be the, the best and the bravest and the most talented. Well, Jesus is that for Israel. Jesus' identity as the faithful son is what gives us a new identity as Christians. 
In him we go from being strangers and enemies of God to beloved sons and daughters because of our relationship with Christ. And, and friends, this is the whole point of Paul's, uh, what Paul says in Ephesians. That Christ tears down the walls of division. He draws all people of any race together, both Jew, Israelite, and non-Jew, us, (laughs) and he makes them into one new people, one new family. So Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Paul loves to use this word household to uh, talk about the church. Uh, Why household and not family? Well, household in in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, referred to um, an extended family. This is mom and dad and children and aunts and uncles and grandparents all living under the one roof, some maybe dozens of people. Paul loves to use this as a picture of church because uh, for Paul, church is one big messy family. And he says it not just because it's a good illustration, it's a nice way of putting it, but actually because it's theologically true. We are family. This is part of our gospel identity. Where do I belong? I belong in God's household. I have been adopted as a son or as a daughter, wherever believers in Jesus gather, I belong with them. I belong to him. Why am I valuable? Because God the Father has poured out his love on me. He calls me precious and beloved. He loves me because he loves Jesus. He accepts me because he accepts Jesus. And obviously when I say me, I mean us. (laughs) If you're a Christian, this is what's true of you. And this is how the family of God was formed. From the very beginning, it was God's purpose to create for himself a family with him as the father. So that's how it was formed. Let's look now at how it flourishes. How does a family flourish? Uh, Jackie and I really, really love going out to eat. Uh, love restaurants, love going out. Um, we were there uh, Friday night with Kat who's staying with us. We were like, we've got to celebrate. She's got a new job. So we're like, we're going to go celebrate. So let's, let's go and have Italian and make sure it's three courses and, and drinks and everything because that's just, it's just good fun, right? Uh, now, I must admit that for Jackie and me, we have uh, lots of all-time favorite restaurants that we go to over and over again. Um, yeah, but also sometimes we like to go somewhere new and try out something that's that's, you know, um, that's newly opened up locally or something like that. And now I must admit that if we go to somewhere new, there's a pretty high criteria if it's going to be someplace that we go back again. Anything like that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's got to be good, right? There's certain minimal standards, you know. The wait staff have to be attentive, but not too attentive. <laughs> uh, the food has got to be well presented and delicious and include meat. The decor should be minimal but tasteful. You know? And the beer list should be extensive. <laughs> That's the, the criteria for, for a good restaurant. If, that, if they tick the boxes, we'll come back again. Now imagine if I treated my own family like I do a restaurant. Imagine the Yelp review. Greenwoods is an old Tasmanian institution, now looking a bit daggy and cliched. The chef serves up 
decent home-style cooking, but not really up to date with latest trends. There was only one choice of beer and wine and no sparkling water. Service was a bit slow, no napkins. And the worst part was, part was the host asked me to help with the dishes afterwards. Two and a half stars. <laughs> now, clearly, that's a bit ridiculous. We, no, we don't actually treat... I hope you don't treat your families like that. Um, but it's not uncommon for Christians to treat church like that. It's not difficult to see church like we would a restaurant, like as a consumer experience. I'll go whenever I need a bit of a spiritual pick-me-up. I'll arrive late if I want and leave early. I'll ask myself, is the music my taste? Is the kids' ministry up to scratch? How good was the coffee? That's a big one. Was the sermon too long? Was the sermon too short? Did the pastor wear a collared shirt or a check shirt? How long was the pastor's beard? I all <laughs> Mary knows exactly how long. I almost googled to see if there was a Yelp for churches, but I chickened out because I'm too afraid that there is. <laughs> now, even if we don't fit into the caricature that I've just described, um, how often do we slip into seeing church as something that meets our needs? But the church is not an event, it's not a restaurant, it's not a service, it's not a business. The church of God is a people and those people are family. We are brothers and sisters and we are called to treat each other like that. If we allow ourselves to become consumer Christians, friends, that doesn't mean that we're not brothers and sisters, it just means that we're not very good ones. Paul says that we are being built together to become a temple that God lives in by His Spirit. That in itself is worth a lot of reflection because it's an amazing point. But let me point out that it says built together, not built separately. God's plan for His family is not that it becomes a social club or an, an affinity club full of individuals who kind of are like each other, doing lives separately, coming together when they feel like it. His plan is that His church is built into a community family of men and women and children who are committed to God and to each other. A healthy church can't help but love like family because a healthy church knows deeply how Jesus has made it so that we can be family. How he's broken down the dividing walls and made us no longer enemies and strangers but sons and daughters. Okay, so what does that mean practically? How does then a church flourish as a family? Well, three things. First, uh, family lives life together. If we become the sort of family that God intends, we've got to do a bit of life together. A good family prioritizes making time for each other regularly, and church family is no different. Actually, God's designed time together as one of the main ways that we grow up as Christians. You know that? It's how he's designed the church to work because we're called to learn together, we're called to encourage one another and called to point each other to what is true. That's why Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
This means that we are gifts of grace to each other so that we may not grow hardened in heart if we don't give up meeting together. So that's uh, family with life together. Secondly, family is diverse and family is messy. Uh, you know the old saying, you, can't choose, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family? Well, to some extent, it's true of the church. <laughs> if you want to go and hang out with people who are just like you, there's ways you can do that. Clubs, social clubs, affinity groups. You can do that. But church is not like that. Church is full of people completely different from you. It should be rich in diversity, a beautiful tapestry of ethnicity and cultures and backgrounds and stories. And diversity then is not something to be feared, something to worry about or be troubled by, but something to be gloried in. Because the gospel tells us that diversity is the best of news. Because it means that Jesus Christ has redeemed for himself all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. The gospel says that in Jesus, all are equal and all are accepted, all have a place in God's family. But of course, with diversity, what comes? Mess. There will be crisis and conflict. There will be miscommunication and offense. Expectations will fail to be met and needs will go unattended. And in most cases in the world, this might be the death of a community, but not in the church because the church not only expects mess, but it glories in it. Why? Because God loves to use broken people to reveal just how wonderful he is. He delights in growing maturity in people, not in spite of conflict and mess, but through conflict and mess. Through mess, we get a chance to grow together in grace and in mercy and forgiveness and patience. We actually get to grow up to be more like Jesus, who is perfectly all these things. And it happens in the fire of mess. The church is diverse and messy. And finally and thirdly, family practices sacrificial love. Uh, Jesus left his disciples with one final commandment. He said, love each other. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. For Jesus, love is not just a happy sentiment, not just kind of feeling nice towards people. For Jesus, love is an action word. It meant dying on a cross for our sake. So loving like family means loving like Jesus, laying down our lives for each other. Do you know you are called to lay down your life for the person sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you? You are bound to them by the Holy Spirit in a way that goes deeper even than blood and they are bound to you in the same way. Remember that the, the gods of our society are individualism and consumerism and they are the opposite of loving sacrifice. Those things, they demand, that, uh, they want you to sacrifice only at the altar of personal preference and individual choice. But Jesus, the one true God, asks you to lay down your rights and preferences and to love God and love his people with all your heart. So this is what a flourishing family looks like. It, it is sacrificial in love. It glories in diversity. It is patient in mess. And it is committed to life together as a family.
That is how God builds his people together into a dwelling place fit for his presence and one that will last into eternity. So we've seen how the family is formed from ages past. We've seen how the family flourishes. Finally, what is the foundation of the family? And I'll finish with this one just briefly. Uh, In my experience, a lot of families have a rock. A rock. This person is the person who just rises for for whatever reason is the one who organizes the family life. Uh, They are the go-to person in times of crisis, you know, the dependable one. Maybe that's you. Maybe you know the one in your family who it is. Sometimes it's an older brother or sister. Sometimes it's, it's mom or dad or grandfather or grandmother. Unfortunately, this person often ends up cracking under the pressure because the reality is that even the strongest family member often isn't perfect, always isn't perfect. And if too much is placed on them, then they can fail to live up to expectations. And when that happens, at worst, that person may have a breakdown or more likely the other family members might begin to feel resentful towards them. Now, uh, if this is what happens in human families, then surely it's going to happen in the church. I mean, think of the sheer amount of, of brokenness and conflict and mess that happens in any church community. We experience it so often, so surely anyone who takes responsibility for that is going to shoulder an immense burden. And they may well shatter under the weight of it all. And if that person is human, then that's almost certainly going to happen. But our foundation, our rock, is not human. Well, he is, but he is not only human. He is God himself, Jesus. And he never breaks. Verse 19, again, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but citizens and members of his household. Verse 20, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Our gospel identity as brothers and sisters in a family is founded in Jesus and only in Jesus. Remember what happened before Jesus died, just before. He shouts out, screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that he says, My God, my God, not my Father, my Father, as he almost always says in the Gospels. Why? Because in that moment, the Father turned his back on the Son, the one from whom, for whom eternity passed was in the heart of the Father, was truly abandoned. He died in our place. We were enemies. He became an enemy. We were strangers. He became a stranger. And then rising again, rising from the dead, he calls us to be united to him, through faith in him, so that we can only call God Father because Jesus is our brother. And we can only be sons and daughters because we are joined with the one true Son. Our gospel identity is in Christ and in him alone, the foundation rock of the church, any church, is Jesus Christ. So in times of crisis, we turn to him. When the cracks of our lives begin to show, we turn to Him. When conflict arises in the church, we turn to Him. When our patience wears thin and our strength gives out, we turn to Him. We must turn to Him. Because if we turn to anyone else, they will inevitably let us down. Family, don't turn to me to bear the weight 
of the burden of this church ultimately because I can't bear it and I will disappoint you. Don't turn to anyone else in this church because they will disappoint you. Jesus doesn't disappoint. He never lets us down. The only way we will commit to living life together is if we see how he gave up his life for us. The only way we will glory in diversity is if we see the glory of how he made us a new people out of broken sinners. The only way we will bear each other, bear with each other in conflict and mess if we, if we see how Jesus was patient with his own disciples even when they betrayed him. The only way we will love sacrificially is if we see the blood from the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his feet poured out for us on the hill of Calvary. Increasingly, those in our Western culture turn to what they do to find an identity. People think they are valuable because of how good they are at navigating the aspects of life. But we find our identity not in what we do. We find our identity in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Our belonging and value is not dependent on our own abilities. No, we look back into our spiritual family history and there we discover that indeed there is royalty in our family tree. King Jesus has loved us beyond belief and he has brought us into his royal family, <laughs> given us an acceptance beyond doubt and an inheritance beyond moth or rust. So if you are part of God's family, then rejoice. Rejoice. And live like it. And if you're not, come and believe in Jesus and become part of it. Come and join this family, his family. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus in an incredible act of self-giving love, your only son, to die. He was abandoned for us. He was crucified for us. He was betrayed for us. So that in him and his glorious resurrection, we might truly find value and worth beyond belief. Father, we are more sinful than we know, and yet we are more loved and accepted than we've ever dared dream. Help us to realize this and help us to work out what that means for us as we live as family together in all of life. Amen.